was uh, David Holmes. And uh, I've been at this university for a little while. Uh, in fact, uh, come this fall, I will have been here for 25 years. I want to thank the folks who've passed the material out that we'll be looking at momentarily, not directly right now. As you looked at the theme that brought you here, I want you to understand at the outset that what we're talking about, uh, like preaching of the African-American prophetic tradition, my goal today is not to be comprehensive in any way because there have been spates of articles and hundreds of books uh, written on topics related to the African-American prophetic tradition, of course, written by uh, our brothers uh, and sisters regarding the history of the restoration movement. So what I'm doing today is simply going to be giving you sort of an appetizer. Some of the work will represent uh, research that has already come out uh, on my uh, book, my recent book on the Birmingham Civil Rights Movement, for example. Others will be things that I'm thinking about that we haven't quite arrived at yet. And so if I could sing, I would sing a verse of let the church say amen. But some of you know me well enough to sit know that I have no business singing, right? And so I'm not going to sing it. But I, really, I was singing on the way. I was jamming on the way. I mean, because it was just me. Nobody was there to, to turn up their face. My, my wife wasn't there to say, yeah, you have no business singing. Just, just stick to your skill set. Uh, you know, and then she sometimes has nerve enough to quote First uh, Peter chapter 4, you know. If anyone minister, let him do it to the ability that God giveth that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ. And you're not really glorifying the Lord when you're trying to sing. Amen. <laughs> so reflections on African-American preaching. And, and, and one of the things I want to say to you at the beginning is that this presentation is about my faith and spiritual heritage. It's about my faith and research. And it's about my faith and our fellowship. Those are, so it's, there's going to be a, a sense in which there's a kind of uh, organic structure to this. Uh, I'm, I'm not planning on drawing any hard, fast conclusions, but I, I need to tell you this at the beginning because once we get to the end, and we will get to the end, once we get to the end, and I raise some difficult questions, I raise some uncomfortable questions, you won't think it's because I have an ax to grind uh, with uh, the Churches of Christ are an ax to grind with the African-American prophetic tradition, right? It's just that when you're family and you love family, sometimes the things you say, sometimes the things you think about uh, are difficult to talk about. So I want everybody to be uh, crystal clear on that. Or as some preachers say, you know, preachers come up with these lines that everyone says and you don't know where they're coming, coming from. I want it to be so clear that Ray Charles could see it and Stevie wouldn't have to wonder. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I, don't, I don't know who came up with that, but yeah, typically people laugh, or sometimes people who've heard it and are tired of it do a courtesy laugh, ha ha, ha 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 okay, but anyway. All right, so th this is where, where we're going today, uh, a personal testimony, and I, I'm, I'm going to try to make sure that I don't get overly uh, emotional about this, but this, you, you will see that this uh, material is very personal to me. So first of all, my faith heritage. God, as we know, uh, God's providence prepares us for our place in the world. So there is history, and then there is history, and then there is her story, right? Everyone has a, a testimony, and we find ourselves within a larger context, within the larger context of the community of our fellowship, within the larger context of our nation, 
because as people will tell you and as scholars will say, there's always something going on in the nation and the world. Look at the times we're living in. Well, that's always the case, especially as we'll soon see for those who have prophetic sensibilities. And you're going to hear me talk about that a lot as we go through the presentation. So uh, my faith heritage. Uh, so I start with this picture. This picture is 1967. And uh, some of you who know me well can guess which one is me. Uh, I was born in 1962. And uh, the, if you're having trouble guessing who I am, I I'm the one that has the most deer in the headlights look of uh, all my siblings. But 67, I, I had no idea how important 1967 was going to be, how it was going to be a transitional period in our nation, where if people ob objected, for example, to uh, Stokely Carmichael's uh, leadership and Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, then there was going to become H. Rap Brown. And there was a radicalization even of Martin Luther King as he began to be very vocal about his stance on Vietnam. People supposedly loved King, but even many African-American leaders rejected him once he took a stance against the Vietnam War. But 67 is also the time when Thurgood Marshall ascends to the Supreme Court as the first African-American Supreme Court Justice. It's also the time in, in, in our fellowship, in our restoration history, where Nashville Christian Institute is closed and where there's some debate about why that happened and what that meant about racism that for some people they thought it was deeply embedded, but those of us who were experiencing knew it was never deeply embedded. It was always there. Even when we smiled, we were like the poet Dunbar. We wear the mask that grins and lies. So as I think about 67, I think about this being sort of a pivotal point. And I think about, of course, being born in 1962, which is also a pivotal point in the civil rights movement. And then, of course, this is from 1955. The gentleman in the middle, Carol Pitts, uh, is, uh, was, was my minister. Uh, that's where I was trained as, a, as a, a boy minister in the Timothy class. I was baptized in 1990, uh, 1977, uh, uh, February, and, and started preaching in November. So these are his brothers, Doris, Carol, and Josie. And yes, Doris it was as tough as his name suggests, right? <laughs> you can sort of have to be tough. And Carol was pretty tough. But I remember Carol Pitts is also uh, the one who uh, wrote a master's thesis on the civil rights movement in the Church of Christ, one that you either have read directly or you've seen um, Wes Crawford refer to. And so it, it's, it's good to see this because you remember 1955, and I'm just trying to put all, line all the dominoes up, 1955 is also the time during the civil rights movement, where we're talking about um, uh, Emmett Till, we're talking about the Montgomery bus boycott, and we're talking about Brown II, Brown versus Board of Education 1954, one, and then 1955 with all deliberate speed. But I want you to notice something, because we'll come back to this as well. Facts, preaching the gospel, facts, commands, and promises. Facts, commands, and promises. Some of you saw a description in uh, the... Um, outline of this, which I'm not going to completely follow, description of this, of this class that talked about clashing hermeneutics, uh, classing views of hermeneutics. And one of the points is I'm, I'm going to make is that towards the end is that hermeneutics itself, and this won't be a newsflash to those of you who study the prophetic tradition, is racialized. It, it is not a neutral exercise. So if it is racialized, we acknowledge it 
and we move forward. So this is really interesting. Facts, commands, and promises as if all the gospel consisted of is facts, commands, and promises. And one of the things we'll see hopefully by the end, and we'll have time for questions and answers, I plan on it, is that not only can we argue now that that might not be the gospel in its entirety, I will also argue that there's a sense in which this is not liberatory or liberatory or freedom uh, seeking uh, for uh, the civil rights movement and for people of color. All right, so this is where I come from and this is how it started. I was baptized in Normandy in 1977, as I said, and this is the brochure from when Carol Pitts left the Figueroa Church of Christ uh, in uh, 1963, he was one of the assistant ministers, and so was everybody and their dad, pretty much, if you're African-American in L.A. And he, he moved to found the Normandy Church of Christ. They started with 63 members in 1963. 63 members in 1963, and by the time I uh, was baptized there in 1977, we had 1,000 members. Uh, and this is, a, again, a picture of uh, Carol Pitts. Uh, and these were the speakers uh, for the gospel meeting. Some of these people you would know, uh, Carl Backus, Vanderbilt Lewis, Arthur Perkins, Misha Nagai, who used to teach here at Pepperdine as well, and then many others. And of course, Thursday, the inimitable R.N. Hogan, Richard Nathaniel Hogan. So this is my roots, and I think that's one of the things we have to keep coming back to as we look forward in our heritage, as we look forward, listen, to race relations and how race relations will improve, we still have to remember where we come from. Because again, I, I believe one of the issues is we haven't really interrogated racism as it relates to hermeneutics and homiletics, right? It, there's more that needs to be talked about. There's more that needs to be done. All right, so also, you have more than one influence. Carol Pitts was one of my main influences. But I had other influences as well because I grew up in LA and as I alluded to early, I started preaching uh, in, in uh, 1977, uh, November of 1977, at the age of 15. And then I started doing this circuit thing where I preached at all of these congregations. And I, you know, I was, I was uh, finding myself, you usually are when you're younger. I mean, some, this name will mean uh, something to some of you. It may not mean uh, something else to others of you. Uh, one moment I would sound like, uh, Jimmy, I would sound like, Billy Washington, in the next minute I would try to sound like Jack Evans, so my friends started to call me Billy Jack, right? So, <laughs> you know, so you're kind of confused. But I think about the influence of, uh, of Carl Backus and Calvin Bowers we'll get to in a second. And the reason, here's the reason why I think about their influence. We are what we are because of our influences, all right? Uh, and so when I, what, I, what I'm going to say in a few minutes, some of you may be really offended by or upset by, I want you to know that I'm deeply rooted in the African-American churches of Christ. Deeply rooted in the African-American churches of Christ. In fact, my love for literature and rhetoric comes from the African-American churches of Christ. Before I would revel in the poetry of Langston Hughes and his syncopated rhythms, long before that happened, I got captured and transported by the Psalms of David which I heard read in the African-American church. But, but before I would be transported in Zora Neale Hurston's novels and the novels of other African-American writers, I would begin to hang out in the Gospels and hear about great preachers talking about the Gospels. So I have this connection. And everything that I love about rhetoric and language 
and literature, and let me just take a quick dig to about rhetoric. I'm not talking about just flowery language, although I am talking about that. Every now and then you want to turn a phrase, it's a turn of phrase, it turns you out, right? So I'm not talking, just talking about that. But also in rhetoric, I'm talking about communication. I'm talking about history. I'm talking about traditions that carry you away and move you. Traditions about food, traditions about music, and so on. So I think about Dr. Backus, but I also think about Dr. Bowers. And you talk about something being serendipitous and a coincidence. I didn't have in my mind to be um, a professor. I started off as a middle school teacher back in 1987, and I wanted to do that basically because I got married and I heard husbands have to work. So, so, so that's how I got, in, I got into that. And so Calvin Bowers was one of the first, uh, not the first uh, Church of Christ, African-American Church of Christ preacher I knew that was educated, but he was not the first that I knew was educated, but he was the first that had advanced graduate degrees and that taught at Pepperdine. And so in 1993, I started teaching at Pepperdine. So that's one connection we have. And uh, yesterday, I had my first job as uh, one of the new associate deans at Pepperdine. I was promoted to associate dean, and the last African-American and first African-American male that Pepperdine has ever had in administration was Calvin Bowers. I'm the second. Go figure, right? So, so I, these days, as he's been dead for a couple of years, I feel a connection to Brother Bowers. And then, of course, there were people I heard during the tent meetings, you know, uh, J you know Jack Evans and G.P. Holt. G.P. Holt, as you know, is the grandson of G.P. Bowser. So if you talk about the fathers of the uh, African-American restoration movement and the African-American hermeneutic tradition, one you would think about is G.P. Bowser. This is his grandson, G.P. Holt. And I remember the tent me meeting, and I do awful imitations, but you guys are already with me, so forgive me for these awful impersonations I'm going to do. But I remember his sermon uh, at the tent meeting, the God of the great idols. Everything that Jesus did. And that God did. They did on the outside. Adam created on the outside. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan on the outside. Ascended to heaven on the outside. And I was just, wow. That's just like amazing, you know. Sounded much better when he did it. But it was just an amazing thing. And then, of course, his ability, uh, Brother Holt's ability to tell stories was just riveting. And then Jack Evans. I mean, some of the stuff he said was really offensive, but it was still funny. You know how that is? Before political incorrectness. Somebody was talking to me one day about, uh, about how she needed to be healed. The, the, uh, I told her the story about a, a woman that was in a wheelchair. She was in that wheelchair for, for 12 years. Her husband came after her with an axe, and she got up and ran. Some people would say, Holy Spirit. she say, hatchet, brother, hatchet, you know. It, so, so you just hear these stories and you just remember them. And I just remember Jack Evans, of course, if you read some of our uh, uh, Church of Christ history and historians I'll mention in a second, Jack Evans was also one of the people that was very bold around 1967 about the racism that African-American members of the Church of Christ and African-Americans at large had had to endure. And so when he became president of Southwestern Christian College in 1967, Jack Evans had a lectureship that, as far as we know, is the first lectureship in a church of Christ to really deal with the issue of race. And there were uh, some who joined along with him on that. So those are my memories of them. 
And then I want to segue into my faith and research. Because my faith has entered into my research. It has done that sort of in a cloak and dagger way. In other words, I haven't always been obvious about it in the beginning, but I'm a full professor, recognized scholar in my field. So in some ways, I find myself coming out of the closet with being very explicit about my relationship uh, to faith and scholarship. Real quick story. Uh, one of the lectures I was invited to a number of years ago was to talk to a couple of PhD students at Florida State University. And I kept mentioning the reason why I studied the civil rights movement was because I was a Christian. And I just, you know, said it and, and it just owned it. And so this one graduate student came up to me and he says, you know, I am, I am uh, a Christian as well, but I don't feel like I can share it as explicitly and as boldly as you can. He says, because after all, you're already an established scholar. And so in some ways I felt pride, but in other ways I, I have felt shame that at my conferences, my academic conferences, those really boring conferences we go to and talk about what color Shakespeare's stockings were, um, I was upset with myself that I hadn't been more explicit about my faith. But now it's a different time. In fact, my most recent book, several university presses wanted to publish it, and I told them no. I'm already established as a scholar. So I went with a theological press that has academic respectability, Cascade. And do you know why I decided to do that? Because in chapter seven, after talking about all that I, and we'll talk about the book in a second, in chapter seven, after talking about all I do with the Birmingham mass meeting and Birmingham mass meeting speeches, I wanted to testify a little bit. I start off that last chapter by talking about how I was born in 1962 and the events that went on during the civil rights movement at that time, whether we're talking about James Meredith and the University of Mississippi, or whether we're talking about people objecting to any kind of form of racial inclusion in universities. That's how I start that chapter. But around the middle of that chapter, I talk about how I was born again. And how I was born again into the family of God, and were it not for that relationship, I would see no connection and no meaning ultimate meeting to what I eventually did when I researched for this last book. And so I, I told some of the university presses that I rejected, hey, God is good, isn't it? I rejected them. Early in the days, they rejected me, but I rejected them, right? So God is good. And I had to tell them, you're, you're not ready for this. You're not ready for a scholar to say that he sees no division, no disconnect, no separation between his intellect and his spirituality. In fact, forgive the pun, he sees those things as integrated. And so I praise God that I was able to do that. But I, I focus primarily on uh, the prophetic tradition. Somebody say prophetic. Yeah, some of y'all knew I was going there. I focus on the prophetic tradition primarily in the broadest definition of, of that term. This is from Albert J. Rubberto. I'm all too aware that reading about prophets does not automatically lead to action. As the old dictum says, those who can't do teach but teaching and reading may lead to doing. And so uh, what I work with, and some of this you can see on that handout you just got, is I, um, my latest book focuses on 1963. That is a pivotal time for the nation and a pivotal time for the civil rights movement. It is in 1963, of course, that uh, John F. Kennedy falls to an assassin's bullet. It is in 1963 that the rising tensions 
uh, and the nation of Islam become more apparent. But it is in 1963 also that the mainstream civil rights movement will meet its last stand in Birmingham. Let me explain. In 1962 in Albany, Georgia, Martin Luther King led a campaign that was a virtual failure. And the reason why it was a virtual fa failure is that Martin Luther King needed villainous racists to act like villainous racists. Uh, the chief of police in Albany, Georgia, was a man by the name of Laurie Pritchard. And Laurie Pritchard studied King, and he studied Gandhi. So he practiced oppression and racism in the most gentle way. When he arrested demonstrators, it was like you were getting ready to go to a hotel. Right this way, please, to your paddy wagon. You're, you, do you need a wake-up call And when you get to jail? I mean, it was, it was so gentle. The racism was so gentle and so subtle that the media wasn't there. And Martin Luther King depended upon the media to see that. So they went to Birmingham. And so arguably, and this is not just me, most historians who study the civil rights movement will tell you, the 38 days in Birmingham from early April to the end of May 1963 were the most consequential moments for the civil rights movement. So here's what I, what I have done over the years. I, um, of course, looked at or listened to the tapes from the Birmingham mass meetings of 1963 in that period, and I transcribed some speeches that had never seen the light of day. And then I analyzed those speeches uh, within the context of prophecy, as I'll define it in a moment. And what I ended up doing from that is saying, okay, what can we, can, what can we learn about the prophetic tradition of the Birmingham movement that will help us understand the relationship to, listen, religion, politics, and race. And then what are the contemporary implications? What do we learn, for example, about black leadership and black activism when we go to Birmingham? Because make no mistake about it, the mass meetings or church rallies or assemblies you see during the Birmingham movement, you see a Martin Luther King that you didn't see in the I Have a Dream speech several months later on. You see a raw king that makes statements like this. One of our demands is that we have a, a biracial council. And when we have that biracial council, we are not going to take a black representative that, that is picked by the white establishment. Does that sound like the warm and fuzzy king? Here's another example. Some of you know about Bull Connor, that virulent racist uh, uh, public commissioner in Birmingham. And so here's King as he talks about Bull Connor. On that day that the water hoses and dogs are unleashed, that evening, May 3rd, Martin Luther King says something to this effect. They have no nerve enough to say uh, uh, they're going to bring uh, uh, dogs on us. Well, when I was a, when I was a child, I, I was bitten by uh, dogs for nothing. So I don't mind being bitten by dogs for freedom and justice. And then they have nerve enough to talk about they're going to put water on us. Well, we're used to water because some of us are Presbyterians and Episcopalians and the Baptists are used to a whole lot of water, you know. So there was this sense in which uh, a king is, is far more acerbic, uh, far more critical of the, uh, of the uh, white establishment in the Birmingham mass meetings. But one of the, the scholars who wrote the preface to my book, Keith David Miller, and Keith Miller, uh, very quickly, there are many traditions of rhetoric, but the two major disciplinary traditions in rhetoric are communication 
and English. Those are the two major subject matters that work with rhetoric. Keith Miller is, since the early 1980s, probably one of the most pronounced scholars in civil rights rhetoric. He's a white fellow from West Texas, and I found out later that his dad was a minister in the Disciples of Christ. And he didn't really mention that too much. But anyway, Keith wrote the preface to this. And basically, as a scholar of King, he argues that this book helps us to understand King in a more fulsome way, understand King in full color. So uh, that's my, uh, my, my book. And let me tell you or read to you from the preface what I'm doing and how I'm using prophecy. This book contends that prophecy ranks among the best frames to account for the ideological range, political traction, and primarily rhetorical effectiveness of the Birmingham mass meeting speeches. By prophecy, I mean a spiritual, moral, conceptual, and pragmatic, and the next word is key, orientation to speak truth to power, point out injustice, and defend the marginalized. Prophecy is rooted in religion, but as many thinkers across disciplines have argued, it's not restricted to places or people of faith. And that's the thing that I really work with. Because one of, one of the big issues, and I've worked with this in some of my research over the years, is that how does religion contribute to the public sphere without presuming to control it? How does religion contribute to politics in such a way that at any given moment, when injustice rears its ugly head, it could cut like the two-edged sword of the word of God, and it wouldn't matter whether you were Democrat or Republican, we're coming after you if you're unjust. And so that, I think that's one of the things that King wrestled with. I know that's one of the things that some of the leaders of the civil rights movement wrestled with. So that's from the preface. And this is one of the images. I could have put the image of the dog and water hoses. But if people don't know anything about the civil rights movement, they know about Birmingham. They know about the thousands of children that were arrested, or hundreds of children that were arrested uh, on May 2nd, and the close to thousands of children that were uh, arrested on May 3rd. They know about that. They know about dogs that were being unleashed on people that were just trying to exercise common human rights. The right to go to a park. The right to use the cleanest bathroom facilities. These rights were very important. And so you can see how this... Uh, it, was, it was a pivotal movement, but as I'm saying, had King uh, and his company not succeeded in Birmingham, given some of the other uh, alternatives that were rising up, including violence as an alternative, uh, the mainstream, the mainstream, let me emphasize that, the mainstream civil rights movement would not have succeeded. And so, of course, this is actually not from Birmingham. This is from Memphis. You know who Martin Luther King is? His chief lieutenant is Ralph Abernathy. And uh, Ralph Abernathy actually represents the fourth chapter of my book and uh, a riveting speech. As a matter of fact, I did a number of interviews uh, for this book, including his wife. And one of the interesting things is, you wouldn't be surprised, of course, that his wife was a big fan. But Ralph Abernathy was with King from Montgomery to Memphis. And on May 3rd, 1963, keep in mind, this is the evening after the dogs and water hoses, right, were unleashed on school-aged children. Usually, uh, Abernathy, was, well, he was very funny. Uh, he, he would be the warm-up act for Martin Luther King. But on this particular night, he spoke after Martin Luther King. And I kid you not, and you can see this if you actually buy my book. I have a book signing uh, on Thursday, Ed Clark, by the way. Um, but you, you, you can actually see this in his speech, where his speech, even in the written text, is more riveting 
when it comes to uh, showing us, watch this, two things, how African Americans made history in, in terms of being a part of this country and helping to build this country and how they were making history during the Civil Rights Movement. He, Abernathy, challenged standard historical accounts in that speech. He, Abernathy, kept challenging the news media in that speech. I guess there's more than one person interested in fake news. So, uh, so Ab Abernathy, uh, basically during that speech, would make statements like, you write this down. This is when we came here. This is what we d did. And he would turn to uh, one of the reporters. One of the reporters happened to be a woman. He says, little lady, I'm glad you're writing it down. You need to write this down. His desire was to get the record straight about the nature of the African-American struggle and how sometimes it was not characterized correctly, either in history or in journalism. That's Abernathy. And then Fred Shuttlesworth, uh, he's the one that I guess is to your left. Uh, and and, and um, yeah, but not to our left, so we're both turned to, to my left as well. Abernathy uh, was the founder of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. It was started in 1956 after the NAACP was outlawed in Alabama. And uh, to put it uh, uh, mildly, Fred Shuttlesworth was crazy. Someone said he had a hard, uh, hard head because he really believed that God had sent him, uh, that sense of prophetic vision. In fact, uh, one of the many times his house was blown up uh, was around the holidays. And so one of the, and this is, keep in mind, this is in early 1960s, one of the um, sheriffs came up to him, or one of the police officers came up to him and said, listen, uh, Reverend, if I were you, I would uh, get out of here. And this is to tell you how bold Abernathy was. He said, officer, you, you're not me. And I want you to go back and tell your clan brothers and sisters. Like when I initially read that, I was like, whoa. He said, you go back and tell your clan brothers and sisters that God brought me to this moment. And I'm here for the duration. And uh, he also was very uh, excited about helping anyone, regardless of race, uh, that would, would be interested in liberation of blacks. For example, I remember uh, just several years before he died, during one of my research trips in Birmingham, I had a chance to talk to him uh, about the Birmingham Civil Rights Movement. And I said, did race ever enter in your mind? He said, yes, but not in the way you think it because it was really about a, a cosmic fight against good and evil, as evidenced by the whites who participated in the movement as well. He said, or son, I just felt so good when he said that. He said, son, let me put it another way. You're either for right or you're not. You're either a prophet or you're not. And there were some wh whites who had prophetic vision. And of course, one uh, need only uh, go back to uh, white fairies or white Harper's Ferry and think of John Brown, right? And then James Bevel. Okay, I said Shuttlesworth crazy. James Bevel prided himself on being crazy. He, uh, he was the one who was responsible for Project C in Birmingham, Alabama. That was the idea to get children to march. Because here's, the, here's one of the misconceptions of the Civil Rights Movement, especially with King. Everybody was ready to march. Everybody was ready to do what they were going to do, and that didn't happen. They were starting to lose volunteers in Birmingham. So he came up with the bright idea with the yarmulke on the back of his head because he believed himself to be a prophet when he said, but I'm a crazy prophet. He came up with the idea that we need to get the children marching. 
in his speech on April 12, 1963, was given the first day that Martin Luther King was in jail, the Birmingham jail. Some of you remember the letter from the Birmingham jail. The first day he was in jail, uh, uh, Bevel gave his speech. And his speech was really about black autonomy and black grassroots. He would make statements like this. Do you really want to be free? If you want to be free right now, Bull Carter can't stop you, Governor Wallace can't stop you, and Martin Luther King doesn't need to lead you. Because the leader of the movement is not King, the leader of this movement is God. Does that sound like grassroots to you? Powerful, powerful message. And, and, and in some ways, if you want to play this conservative versus liberal game, which I think is problematic, it sounded very conservative. It was very much about this autonomy, that if you decide to be free, it doesn't matter if, they, if you lose your job, you can find another job. And you know how we talk about his eyes on the sparrow and God feeds the birds? He said, God even feeds the cockroaches, right? A powerful, powerful thinker uh, with serious emotional problems. Um, and then, of course, these are what I call the two secular prophets. Because, again, one of my points is this. Prophecy is rooted in religion. It's rooted not only in the Judeo-Christian religion, but it's rooted in a number of different religions, but also it has implications for our secular society. So even though these two uh, gentlemen, James Farmer and Roy Wilkins, uh, had a Christian upbringing, neither of them ascribed to faith in ways that we would think about. In fact, I would say that James Farmer, he's the one to your left, he was really one that was probably more of the secularist. He was doing the freedom rides in the 1940s. And uh, one of the points he makes in his speech is that the power of human spirituality is a prophetic legacy. And then, of course, Roy uh, Wilkins, uh, who, when you listen to his speech on tape, had to be the most boring thing you ever want to hear. But if you actually analyze it, it was very cold and calculating. For instance, he attacked and critiqued notions about blacks uh, being um, prone to criminality. He goes back, for example, to Washington, D.C., before it was predominantly black, and basically argues, who's responsible for the rise of criminality then? So very sophisticated level of argument that he makes. And then, of course, uh, my sixth chapter deals with uh, the, the legacy of King as it relates to the presidency of Barack Obama. I have a lot to uh, criticize when it comes to Obama. However, according to my friend that you'll meet in a second, theologian Raymond Carr, I didn't hit him up hard enough. But where Raymond Carr and I disagree, and of course Raymond's wrong on this, Dr. Carr's wrong on this, profoundly wrong, is that the expectation that somehow a president or any politician will be prophetic is problematic. Let me explain. A president can take a stand. A president uh, can speak against something wrong. But a president will not have the same kind of ethos or persona as a Martin Luther King, ever, because you're head of state. You are a standard bearer. So this, this kind of notion that somehow um, Obama would be prophetic simply because he was president, I, I found to be problematic. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons we have a controversy, or have had a controversy, for example, surrounding uh, John Lewis, is once upon a time, John Lewis who was a part of the Freedom Rides, John Lewis, who was a part of the Selma March, was prophetic. But many of us have grown up, especially you young folk. I mean, Jimmy Hurd is old enough to remember, but for you younger people, right? Um, you've only known him as Congressman Lewis. And politician and prophet does not 
mix. Because if you do, you get to a dogma that led to the nation of Islam. If you do, you get to a dogma that leads to the hard religious right. I'm not talking about people right of center. I'm talking about people who think God has sent them to make everybody and their mama Republican. Right? That's, that, that's, a, that's a dogma that, that uh, develops. So you see the pointing. One pointing is from um, uh, Obama, and then one pointing is uh, to try to find the assassin for uh, Martin Luther King. We think he shot from over there on May 4th, 1968. And what I say we have to really wrestle with is the role of religion in politics and to what extent that is still tainted by race. Okay, so I I've talked about, uh, and someone give me the time because I'm getting too happy. What time is it? Okay, we're good. Okay, so I talked about my faith and my heritage, how I grew up. I talked about faith in my research. I always talk about faith in our fellowship. Uh, what is the relationship between restoration history and the black prophetic tradition? And let me review. If the black prophetic tradition is something rooted in religion that, that rises above religion, if the black prophetic tradition is something that attempts to be, not always successful, attempts to be so unchained, and I'm using that term deliberately, so unchained from ideology that it will critique you whether you're politically right, left, or uh, in the middle, if in fact that is, how does that relate to our... Uh, restoration tradition. And of course, we have some great brotherhood historians, and it occurred to me, uh, I was just thinking about my colleague, uh, Dr. Loretta Honeycutt, who until I moved to the dean's office yesterday was my next door neighbor. She's doing some powerful work on Church of Christ women. And I'm telling you, when some of that history gets out, whoo, conservative brothers who don't believe in praise teams, whoo, conservative brothers who don't believe in uh, women speaking at all, <laughs> Oh, history don't lie. You know, we might, but history doesn't. Anyway, so her name is Loretta, Loretta Honeycutt, H-U-N-N-I-C-U-T-T. -T. I'll give you the reference because when I just thought of her when I put Brotherhood Historian. But some of you know the work of Edward Robinson. Edward Robinson was a professor at uh, Abilene Christian. Now he's a professor at Southwestern Christian College. Has written five books on the African-American Church of Christ. I recommend you read them all. Uh, one in particular about the fighting spirit in Texas. Okay, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we had some issues. And of course, Richard T. Hughes' uh, work is, is, uh, is voluminous. And Wes Crawford's recent book, I think, is, is, is very helpful. I have some concerns. I'll share them with you privately. I won't share with them with you publicly. Because keep in mind, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a historian. I'm not a historian. I'm, a, I'm a, a rhetorical scholar who does cultural rhetoric who has dabbled in history for 20 years. How does that sound? And so I've done archival stuff and research stuff, but so I'm not hating on the historian. Some of his conclusions I find problematic, but you know, I'm not here to slam him. I'm here to recommend him. Uh, you need to read Robinson, you need to read Hughes, and you need to read Crawford. Okay, so there were people who reflected, and I'm not listing everybody because it's like the Academy Awards, right? You can't list everybody and thank everybody. There are people who reflected or respected the black prophetic tradition. Fred Gray. I mean, you can't get any bigger than the lawyer for the civil rights movement and the lawyer in other cases, including the fight uh, to save NCI. Franklin F Florence, and you're talking about that northern swag of the civil rights movement as he uh, worked to uh, help with housing challenges and did some work with Malcolm X. And R.N. Hogan. This is the part I left out. I talked about Calvin Bowers and Pepperdine and my relationship to uh, uh, Pepperdine. Guess what happened? Uh, March 1st, guess, guess, 
where Calvin Bowers was for uh, uh, the last 50 years of his life at Figueroa, I'm now the associate minister of the Figueroa Church of Christ. So you think I'm trying to follow Calvin? I'm not, really. He'd be a nice person to try to follow, but, I, but you know, I wouldn't like that. So R.N. Hogan was a very interesting, and you actually have his sermon, and we may or may not get to the point I wanted to make about his sermon, but I'll just say this now. Hogan is one of those examples of someone who always spoke out against segregation. He did it through the Christian echo. Jack Evans recalls a story where they were talking about the founding of Southwestern Christian College. It must have been around the late uh, 40s or somewhere around 47, 48. And he saw Brother Hogan around the table in the 1940s. And as they were talking about founding Southwestern Christian College, according to Jack Evans, this is what Brother Hogan said. Well, well that's all fine. But if y'all, and was looking at the white colleagues around the table, if y'all were Christians, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. Can you imagine saying that in the 1940s? It was, it was really a kind of prophetic in terms of prophecy and critique. And of course, Eugene Lawton and Roosevelt Wells they were part of a group of African-American uh, preachers, and I have an imitation of Eugene Lawton. I just don't have time to give it. Um, I don't have time to sound my trumpet. <laughs> Some of you get that. Um, they were part of the uh, 1960s attempts to have workshops on race relations. Uh, both of them were a part of that. Uh, Roosevelt Wells uh, wrote, a, wrote a speech uh, for one of the uh, white Christian college lectureships. He sent them a draft of the speech. And the speech was so cutting that it was actually, he was actually disinvited. And of course, Carl Spain, in his prophetic speech, uh, circa 1960 to Abilene Christian University, saying it's high time that we act like Christians and we accept our Negro brothers and sisters in school. And John Allen Chalk uh, was, of course, uh, a white brother who was a part of the Southwestern lectureship in 1967 on race. He also was one who openly challenged Rule Lemons when Rule Lemons, editor of the Firm Foundation, condemned Martin Luther King. And so there's a, and, and so here's the point I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make here. We have people who were a part of what I would call the African-American prophetic tradition, either as participants or as what I would call allies or apprentices. I call allies or apprentices someone who is not directly related to that experience, uh, you know, by race or culture, but yet they have a sympathy towards it. And certainly the white gentleman mentioned here did. Okay, now, but we have heirs and allies of the black prophetic tradition now. Okay, and I, you know, I haven't used this, and I should just use this to be fancy. This is Dwayne Winrow. He's one of the last sons of the gospel of uh, Marshall Keeble. Uh, he does some really prophetic stuff for years in his church, particularly with issues of police brutality and trying to get um, the community uh, and uh, police on the same page. And of course, everybody knows Jerry Taylor. Uh, some of us call him the Martin Luther King of the Church of Christ. Uh, Jerry Taylor has been involved, and some of you have been involved, with racial reconciliation workshops. So he's a powerful, powerful example of an heir to the prophetic tradition. And then I always mispronounce Don's last name. Somebody say it for me. McLaughlin. This white dude, crazy. <laughs> I think every major civil rights organization he probably would have been a part of, you know, if he was old enough. But he is kind of old now. But, you know, don't tell him I said that. Um, just, just this idea of wherever you find injustice, we're going to go after it. We don't care. He's going to smile and still tell you off. Uh, I, I consider him a strong ally to the black prophetic tradition. And then you'll get to know this fella. Wow, if you don't already know him, Raymond Carr. Raymond Carr, he's not right on everything, right? Uh, he is soon to be recognized in, in, as an international scholar 
and one of the most consequential, if not the, the most consequential um, theologians of the, of the 20th century, Karl Barth. And he also does work on James Cone. And James Cone, by the way, the father of black theology, just passed on Saturday. But uh, Ray Raymond is amazing in his understanding of the theological implications of the prophetic tradition. Let me explain. Theology is about how you see God, right? And so I can do a wonderful imitation of Ray Carr, but since you guys don't know him, you won't like it. This is Ray Carr talking about the, the extent of the prophetic tradition if you understand God. Holmes, he always calls you by your last name. If there are atheists who are standing for the truth, do not surprise me, do not be surprised if I am marching with them. If they are standing for truth. You see, because God at once can be traditional, but that root of tradition, to quote the Latin, actually reaches up and cuts against anything that becomes normative. Well, that's a fancy way of saying, when the black tradition becomes dogmatic, it's time to critique it. When the black tradition becomes exclusionary, it is not representing the organic heart of the prophetic movement. All right, so those are some wonderful guys there. Okay, so we talked about the relationship between uh, restoration, uh, a little bit between restoration history and, and uh, the black prophetic tradition, basically, the relationship, we'll go into more detail in a second, is, uh, is a problematic one. And the only way you, one of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways you begin to find out about the limitations between our restoration history and the African-American prophetic tradition, the tenuous connection, how it is tethered but not uh, chained to the African-American prophetic tradition, is to talk about this notion of hermeneutics. We know that hermeneutics, the term originally comes from uh, the Greek uh, uh, demigod Hermes, who would deliver messages, right? And then we come and talk about the science and art of uh, interpretation. So Hughes does a wonderful job uh, in a lot of his books. I'm, I'm right now citing Reviving the Ancient Faith um, on contrasting legacies of interpretation. When it came to issues of race and social justice, um, Alexander Campbell, as a rationalist, rooted in the 18th century rationalist tradition, and I don't have time to talk about this, but I have a lot to say in terms of the rhetoric of 18th century uh, common sense realism. His view was pretty much, if it's not textually prescribed in some way, it's a non-issue. So while as a personal conviction, um, he was, against, he was uh, against slavery, he didn't believe that the Bible really taught against it, right? So this was this rationalist, this uh, inductive and deductive approach. Sort of reminds me, I don't have time to tell this, but I'm telling this anyway. Sort of reminds me of this ambivalent relationship that Thomas Jefferson had with slavery. In the earlier drafts of the Declaration of, Insta, uh, of Independence, he wanted the notion of social equality to be talked about with regard to the African, but it wasn't talked about. He was a big fan, uh, Jefferson was, of Benjamin Banneker, that African-American inventor. And then he still believed in the cultural inferiority of blacks. But the most ambivalence comes from, I'm not gonna tell that story again. Can I tell it? Okay, you guys asked for it, but it's on tape. I'll, I'll never be at lectureship again if I tell the same. His most, his most ambivalent connection was with, we know now historically, Sally Hemings, one of his slaves. Because his mind was telling him no. But his body <laughs> was telling him yes. 
And when it came to a, a sister like Sally Hemings, he didn't see nothing wrong. But anyway, so. <laughs> so, so when we talk about Barton Stone, though, Bar Barton Stone is out of, of course, the, uh, the um, Second Great Awakening tradition, that, that tradition. And that tradition was really about blacks and whites worshiping together. Really cool stuff. And you know one of the heirs to Barton Stone would be David Lipscomb. And David Lipscomb had conniptions about white churches that didn't want to be integrated or have black people integrated into their churches. But here's the problem. It stayed there. In other words, we're going to talk about in the kingdom of God that it's wrong, in church it's wrong, but we're never going to open our voice is to the public sphere. And I can't help but wonder if either... Alexander Campbell, as brilliant as he was, and he was brilliant, and uh, Stone, as sympathetic as he was to the black plight, remember what Micah said. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. So when we talk about the African-American prophetic tradition, we begin with a hermeneutic that is limiting or delimiting. Now, I'm not going to say that it completely restricted. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these African-American people like Aaron Hogan, Jack Evans, and others who participated. But in, in some ways, the hermeneutic was inhibiting. Uh, and this is a larger context to consider, and we don't have a lot of time to talk about this since we only have, what, five minutes or something. Enlightenment categorical thinking not only restricted the restoration's hermeneutics, but this way of thinking was racist. Not just racist morally, but bigoted intellectually. Modernistic culture assumed that what the Europeans deemed informative, substantive, and rational was the only legitimate way to clear thinking. There's uh, something I just want to throw out because it kind of sounds smart, but it'll illustrate the point I'm making. In some ways, uh, analytic philosophy now is an heir to the kind of uh, with, with much more complications as an is, is heir to this kind of rationalist paradigm that you see in Campbell. One of the issues is it deals only with logos, as uh, Aristotle would say, and not pathos. Here's the other problem. According to um, at least a couple of Ugandan, uh, Ugandan philosophers, the structures we use in European languages to talk about Logic don't fit most West African languages. Let me say that again. The structures we use to logically talk about uh, arguments, and this argument leads to this, don't fit. Right? And so that's something to think about as well. But there's a larger culture, whether you're talking about rhetoric or aesthetics. Hugh Blair, that, rhetor uh, that rhetorician from which we get all of our literary views of aesthetics. Hugh Blair talks about this notion of taste, for example. It talks about how a Hottentot, a derogatory term for South Africans, were incapable of mastering taste. What are you saying, David? I'm glad you asked. I'm saying that rationalism and rationalizing against black people is not just, an it's not just a moral thing, it's an intellectual tradition. Yeah, some of you saw Django Unchained, but because you're at a Christian college, you're going to be afraid to admit that you saw it. <laughs> the, the scene with uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio represents a, a, a theory called phrenology. There was also chronology and other sites of sciences that we would call pseudoscience. 
but that Harvard took very seriously in those days, that Columbia took very seriously in those days. David, what are you saying? I'm saying there's an intellectual tradition of racism that we need to re-examine in light of our hermeneutic and not just think about spiritual and moral injustice. You feel me? Because one thing to say, well, you know, that was morally unjust. You think? That was spiritually reprehensible. No kidding. But what about some of the intellectual underpinnings or residues that we may still have and may still think about? So uh, two preliminary theories, and then I guess we'll have a few minutes to talk. Polemical or propositional preaching inhibits the syncretism of genres, rituals, and perceptions of spirituality that has characterized African-American uh, religious history. What are you saying, David? Going back to West Africa to uh, the Middle Passage, and not just, uh, not just in, uh, in America, but all of the diaspora, right? Uh, 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 African-Americans, Africans have found themselves uh, forced to come up with an intellectual kind of gumbo where they work through ideas in a number of ways and they borrow in a number of ways. You can refer to it as an intellectual gumbo or you can refer to it as a quilt where all of these patches that seem disparate come and make something very unified. But then also the second point I would make is that propositionalizing and marginalizing of Old Testament narrative is of great cultural and political consequences for African Americans. And we'll see that in a second. In other words, as African Americans, if you're part of the restoration tradition, your hermeneutic limits you to talk about politics and the flexible ways that the African American cultural historical tradition does more largely speaking. And I don't really have time to go through all of this uh, exactly, but here's, what you, here's the, the main thing you got to get from all of that fancy stuff up there. I think you do need to con, uh, con, uh, copy down the references. A part of the legalism that I suspect still exists among some African-American churches of Christ and some white churches of Christ is of greater consequence for the African-American churches of Christ in this way. Historically, in African-American religious history, the intellect was never detached from the body. The intellect was never detached from the experience in the body. So for example, uh, when you read somebody like James Henry Harris, he's talking about race as embodied hermeneutic. What does he mean by that? He basically means that when I talk about my spiritual and social struggle, those things have to be talked about in terms of my body, embodied experience as a person of color. Uh, the way I'd like to illustrate it clearly is, I'm now associate dean, I've had tenure since 2003, I've, uh, I was a full professor, um, oh, I became a full professor 10 years ago. I've been pulled over 10 times uh, going home. And the last time was really indignant because the guy was a kid. Of course, my dad taught me respect, so I didn't call him officer kid. But that's what I wanted to do. You couldn't help but see this body, right? Uh, and, and, and having sensitivity classes won't help that. And then, of course, racist interpreted being is basically this. We all perform race. What does that mean? Well, that means that as much as we want to be colorblind, we want to convince people that we're open. We want to convince people that uh, we're, we're somehow connecting in some way. And the way Steve Mayu describes that is, there's a performance that goes along with any identity, not just race, not just gender, any identity. I mean, it might be race, it might be gender, it might be class, it might be 
that you're from Oklahoma, you know, any, any identity, right? All, all of these things come into play, and it ends up being performed, listen to this, with the same kind of agency or independence you attempt to perform in your job. No one at your job sees the real you. So when we cut across identity, there, there are ways in which we're performing identity. Well, what's the point? That's hermeneutical because we have to be aware that that is a perspective. And then there's this guy, you know, who's, I don't know what's wrong with him, David Holmes and this other person, Issa Esawana, who talk about race as a hermeneutic. And that means that we're looking at the lens of race to understand our culture. That's very different than someone being bigoted. In other words, if I understand that I am looking at my culture through the lens of nationalism, I know that I'm going to get some kind of reading. And so there's a sense in which I detach from it. Same thing with race as a hermeneutic. Race can be a way of reading a way, a way. Somebody say a way. Turn to your neighbor and say it's not the only way. Okay, so it, it, it is a way of helping us to see what's going on in our culture. And then uh, lastly, prophetic reading. It's not genre bound. This goes back to the West African eclectic tradition. What I mean by not genre bound is this. When we talk about liberation, we can't just say that logic is the best way to do it. We can't just say that poetry is the best way to do it. But we get in where we fit in. We, we milk a lot of cows, but we make our own butter when it comes to this notion of reading text in a way that are liberatory. And then prophetic reading also synthesizes worldviews. King ended up working with the Democrats, but it burned him up because in 1957 in Ghana, when he met Richard Nixon, he thought Richard Nixon was going to be great. He's wrong about that. But understand, King wasn't beholden, or tried not to be beholden to Democrats or Republicans. You know why? He needed his prophetic distancing. Which is why even though King uh, was a Baptist minister, uh, Baptist Christian minister, Martin Luther King also was very, very critical of views of Christianity that would not speak to social justice, which is why Martin Luther King said, not every minister is a prophet. And why Martin Luther King loved this country, you can see it in I Have a Dream speech. If Martin Luther King had lived past April 4th, 1968, do you know what his sermon would have been that Sunday at uh, the Ebenezer Baptist Church? why America may go to hell. The love that can still be critical. So it synthesizes worldview, and then it is inflected with the language of liberation. So the Afro-American prophetic tradition in, in short says, we are going to try to put ourselves in the place and with the tools, no matter what those tools will be, that will critique any sort of worldview, any sort of politics, any sort of race, including your own race as African-Americans, that begin to cut across that vision of prophetic liberation. Thank you.